Uh, you guys can open up to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be finishing out that chapter this morning. Um, Matthew is continuing to kind of show us the authority of Jesus, which is uh, uh, something we all need to, to learn and understand. We saw it through the way he taught people on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're seeing it now through the way he lives his life. And so both his walk and his talk combine to, to tell us something about who he is. And they tell us that he has authority over everything. And that's important because what does that tell us? That tells us that he's in fact God, because God is the only one who has authority over everything. The crowd who heard him preach made the statement that they'd never heard anybody preach with such authority, and they marveled at it. And then this all gets reinforced when he's done with the sermon by the way he goes out and lives and things he begins to do, and that's what we've been looking at. So they've watched Jesus completely heal a man with leprosy, which tells them that Jesus has authority over disease. They saw him heal a paralytic, which told them that he has authority over disability. They saw him command the winds and the waves to just settle themselves down, which tells them that he has authority over disaster. And today, as we, as we get into the, the sermon, we're going to see that Jesus also has complete authority over demons. So disease, disability, disaster, and demons, those are pretty much the categories in life that terrify us. Something fits into those categories. So you get a, you get a healthy or a scary diagnosis of some kind about your health. Um, fear begins to creep in. You get that call about a tragic accident. Somebody you love has been injured or hurt or, or you know, something happens to you. And again, the fear, what, what, what's going to happen creeps in. Natural disaster. I, I think about, you know, the wind starts blowing. We've got all these big trees. There's two of them that are just leaning towards the house and I'm just waiting for the, you know, or a fire or, you know, we've got storms that come into our lives that are unexpected. Fear creeps in. And then you just think about the evil that surrounds us in our world in our country, in our towns, in our neighborhood, and, and even what filters into our homes. And, and, and it's easy to be gripped with fear over these things. They're all things we have no control over. And, and so they're also things that can change our lives in an instant. And so, and so it's, it's no wonder that we get filled with fear. But um, things that are completely unpredictable and things we don't have authority over can be terrifying. They terrify me if I, if I dwell on them. And life would be unbearable if that was the end of the story but it's not the end of the story because there is one who can predict them and who has authority over them. One who can heal disease with a touch, who can remove paralysis with a word, who can calm a storm with a command. And as we will see this morning, one who can tell evil to leave. And it does. Having Jesus as our Lord is a difference maker. It means that I don't have to go through life terrified of uh, of the unknown or of what might happen. I don't know if you're anything like me, but this is really good news because I can, I can, I can freak out over what might happen all day long. I have this wonderful gift where you can bring me any scenario of any kind and I can tell you all that could go wrong. Uh, it's just, you know, my wife loves it. It's I'm fun at parties. I just, I, I can think about that stuff if I, if I want to. And when it comes to Satan and demons and evil, I can really spin out of control because this kind of stuff, satanic stuff, scares me. It always has. I hate scary movies. I hate horror movies. I don't like, uh, I don't like any kind of a scenario like haunted houses. I hate them. I hate them. I always have. I don't like Halloween. I think all of that's weird to me. I don't like it when evil triumphs. If I'm watching something and, and evil wins, I can't stand it. There are times in our world where it seems like this is exactly what's happening. 
It seems like evil is gaining ground and even winning sometimes. But through passages like the one we're going to look at today, we can have faith that that's not the case at all. God really is in complete control. He really does have authority over everything. He really is accomplishing his plan through all of it. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And it says, when, when he, Jesus, came to the other side of the country of the Gardenas, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, this is a really weird account. Uh, David actually had this one, and then he worked it out to where I got it. I don't know how he did that, but I, I let him do it. So I get the weird account. Um, it's even more weird when you read the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke because they add a lot more information into the, into the equation. And so I think it might be worthwhile and helpful if we look at one of those accounts. We're going to look at Mark chapter 5 so that we can just kind of get a, a more full picture of, of all that's taken place here. And as, I, as we read through Matthew 5, or I'm sorry, Mark 5, uh, see if you can pick up on some of the extra details that are in this and, and some of the, well, we'll, we'll get there. But uh, starting in verse 1 of Mark 5, it says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and change, chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you or beg you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. Now that right there is where I would have got back in the boat and, and, and just been on my way because that's terrifying. Legion means 6,000, just so you know. Uh, this is one of those times when having the pronouns they, them actually kind of works, right? It makes sense to me here. <laughs> and, and, and then verse 10 says, and, and he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a great hit of, herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, and he begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus goes along with the idea, but the pigs do not go along with the idea. Verse 13 says, he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That's a bad day of work if you're a herdsman, by the way. <laughs> Just, uh, you, you, now you've, you've got to explain this. Uh, you know, when we came to work this morning, you had 2,000 pigs. Yeah, now you have none. That's, that's, that's a hard thing to explain to the boss, right? All your pigs are dead. Verse 14, it says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he, this is talking about legion, or excuse me, Jesus, as he was getting into the boat, the man, legion, who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. He wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the, in the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities in that area, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled at, at what this guy had to tell them. Now, there's one big kind of elephant in the room detail that we have to talk about. I don't know if you noticed what it was. But in Matthew, it tells us that two demon-possessed men came out to meet Jesus. And in Mark and Luke, they say one man came out to meet Jesus. And this is one of those areas in the Bible where, where people will come and say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust what it says. Uh, you know, and, and this is one of these spots they'll come to. And I would just argue that that's not the case at all. And I'm going to explain a few, things, a few reasons why. The first thing we need to acknowledge, though, is that when we read the Bible, an element of faith is needed. Okay? Not blind faith, but when, when we read the Bible, faith is, is required. Uh, faith is pleasing to God, and, and we have to have it when we read His Word. But I want you to know that the Bible is an amazing book that tells one cohesive and consistent story. It's full of prophecies that have been fulfilled. It's full of principles of life that actually work. It's full of science and history and archaeology that have proven, been proven over and over again to be accurate. It's funny how the, you know, sometimes the, it takes the world a while to catch up with what the Bible says is true, and then you realize, oh, it's been saying that for a long time, and now we realize it's right. There are plenty of reasons for us to trust the Bible, but faith is still required. So I'll, that's a given. The second thing I would point out is that things like this, one man versus two men, don't change anything important at all. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not a significant detail. They don't change the overall story of the Bible or the, the story of this account. It doesn't, it doesn't make, you know, there's no discrepancies here that, that make a difference as far as what we believe or what we teach. The third thing I would point out is if these guys had access to each other's writings, which they did, you know, Luke said he compiled so much, you know, Luke was like the master of, of research. They had, they had each other's writings. They could have looked at this. They would have had time to get their stories straight if they were making up stories. I don't know if you were, you know, remember being young and you were about to get in trouble. You and your friends had done something wrong. It was vitally important that you got together and you got your story straight before you had to go and talk to anybody that was in charge. Because if you didn't get your story straight, you were going to get busted, right? The reason these guys didn't need to do that is because they were telling the truth. If you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about getting your story straight. What they were doing is they were just telling the story according to their own vantage, their own vantage point. And so if, if there was a car accident that happened out here today and the three of us saw it, depending on where we were standing and, and, and what we saw and our personalities and the things we focused on, we could come away with very different stories. One of us might focus on what happened to the car. Car guy would be like, you know, this is what, this is what took place, the damage in the car. One person who's just really a people person would talk about the people that were involved. All of this would change the way you tell the story, but it, if you're not worried about making stories up, you would just tell the truth. And I think that's exactly what these guys do. The other thing I would point out, the fourth thing is this, and I believe this is the explanation, that focusing in on one individual when recounting an event isn't actually an unusual thing to do. So for instance, 
You guys all know Pastor David, you know Chad and I, and you kind of know our personalities. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Pastor David is slightly a bigger personality than the rest of us. He's kind of a character. He's one of these more charismatic, I want to use the word flamboyant, but I think you'd get mad at me if I use that. Not in, the, not in the weird way, but he's one of those people that you just kind of notice. So when we go out to places, like we'll go hang out at O'Kane's, we'll be around the fire pits, we'll engage with some people and talk. Guess what? They focus on David. They talk to David. When we leave that night, they want to get David's contact information and they want to keep in touch with him. If they were to go home and tell a story, they would say, man, you wouldn't believe it. I met this pastor today at O'Kane's and we had this great conversation. And Chad and I were there going, you know, you know we, were, we were here too. But, you know, it's like that's kind of the way it works. He's, a, he's one of those people that that's what happens. So in Matthew's account, were there two guys there? Yes. But one of them was a guy called Legion. He's the one you noticed. He's the one you're going to talk about. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. So with that in mind, we pick up our text in in verse 28, where it says, when they got to the other side, Uh, Jesus and his disciples had had gotten into a boat to get away from the crowds. David talked about what happened last week. Uh, He, he, you know, the the storm comes up, um, all this stuff goes down. And the disciples ask a very important question. They say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Basically, they're like, who is this? Well, ironically, they're about to get the answer to that question as they step out of the boat and get on on the shore uh, because the demons immediately approach Jesus and correctly identify him by saying, what have you to do with us, O son of God? And Luke's account, they refer to Jesus as Jesus the son of the most high God. I love that. They know exactly who this is. There's no question in their mind, in the demon's mind, who this is. They know who this is. It's funny that the disciples are still trying to figure it out. The demons know. 100% they know. And if we take nothing else away from this passage today, this is enough. Because who you say Jesus is matters so much. He claimed to be God. And if you say he's anything else, you end up with a different Jesus and you end up with someone who is incapable of saving you. This is vitally important. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Now, there are other important observations that we can make. Uh, The first one is this. Demons are real and they are dangerous. And I don't like this one at all, if I'm being honest. I wish they weren't real and I wish they weren't dangerous, but they are. So first off, let's just answer the question, what are demons? What are unclean spirits, as they are sometimes called? They're fallen angels who, along with Satan, have chosen to rebel against God. They are able to take possession of people, um, not believers. I want to get that out of the way. I don't, I don't think a demon can possess a believer because we are indwelled with God's Holy Spirit. And I don't believe the Holy Spirit will share a home with a demon. So believers can be oppressed, but not possessed. And, and there's, a, there's a big difference in that. So um, non-believers, I believe, can be possessed. I don't know how common it is. Uh, in the Old Testament, you didn't see a lot of it. Towards this time when Jesus is here, you see a lot of it. I don't know how much of it goes on today. I, I think sometimes we, when we see a lot of uh, mental illness and things that are you know, of this nature, I, I wonder what it is. I don't know exactly. But I believe it's something that can still happen. I also believe that there are ways that we can um, encourage this as or non-believers can encourage us by, by the windows and the doors that they leave open in their lives. So many people mess around with, with things that are dangerous in this regard, mind altering drugs. You know, I, even the, just the uptick in, in, you know, just smoking pot. I mean, you're opening yourself up to something. I believe when you start to go down these pathways, I would be super careful 
with this. Uh, tarot cards, seances, Ouija boards, you know, some of the stuff's really obvious that it's just things to do with the occult, but, but we should be careful. People might be inviting evil into their lives through these things. You know? I don't know how all this works, but I know that back when I was doing a lot of this kind of stuff, there was a lot more evil present in my life. Now, there are two extremes people seem to go to regarding Satan and demons. They either make them everything or they make them nothing. I don't know if you guys have ever read the, the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a fascinating book, and it's, it's told from the perspective of, of a senior demon named Screwtape who's writing to a junior demon named Wormwood, trying to tell them what, what they, you know, this little guy needs to do to be effective in dismantling you know, the people of God. It's really quite unique. But in the preface, C.S. Lewis points out perfectly, he illustrates what I'm saying. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And this is kind of what we see happening, these extremes. So we end up either ignoring the fact that we have a real spiritual enemy to contend with, or we have these people that, that, that look for you know, demons and Satan behind every rock and behind every door under every rock, and they blame him for everything that happens in the day, and they're just consumed with, what's he doing today? Where is he at? What's going on? And, and they're almost paralyzed with fear because of this. So one gives Satan far too little credit, one gives Satan far too much credit, the Bible tells us to be sober-minded and watchful in regards to this. So acknowledge it, be aware of it. Uh, he is a real enemy. He's like a, a, a lion that prowls around looking for somebody to devour, it says, which is kind of scary. But if you stay close to the shepherd and you stay close to the herd, you're probably going to be just fine, right? Just don't, don't wander off too far and don't, don't invite stupid things into your life. Jesus once told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. I just still want to know what that means. It's like, what? What does he want to do exactly? And what does that look like? Sift me like wheat? I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book of Job, but I picture kind of something like that. What, what Satan was doing to Job, probably a similar, similar thing. And, and we see this kind of in, in this man's life, this, this guy they call Legion. Satan was doing to this man what I believe he would do with every one of us if he could. He was tormenting this person. You know, Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to get us to curse God to his face, and he wants us to end up in hell. He hates God. He wants us to hate him too. And, and it's interesting because there is no redemption for fallen angels. None. They know that their fate is sealed. They've got nothing more to lose. They just want to see you go where they go. They, they want to take you down with them. So we kind of get an up-close and personal look at, at how Satan works when we look at this man um, and we see that the result of it was this man wanted to end his life. This had overwhelmed him so much that all he wanted to do was, was check out. He, couldn't, he didn't want to be there anymore. So night and day, it says among the tombs, he was crying and he was cutting himself with stones. And, and you think about the cutting thing that goes on today and, and just kind of this, this presence and what it did. You know, I, can't, I couldn't help but think about suicide rates, how, how crazy they've gotten. And it just makes you wonder how much of this is demonic influence, how much of this is just evil, convincing people that they have no worth and they have no hope and that they would be better just to just check out of life. And, and I think this is straight from the pit of hell. This is, this is a ploy of Satan to make people believe this. And the reaction of the pigs seems to confirm this idea. The minute the demons entered them, what did they want to do? Rush to their deaths. First thing, instinct, I need to die. There's something weird about that. I said there's a lot of weird questions in this passage. It's like, I don't know. It's clear, though, that Satan doesn't want anyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to meet Jesus. 
He doesn't want any, anyone's life to be redeemed or rescued by him. And if he can get people to take their own life before that happens, he accomplishes that goal. In John 10.10, Jesus tells us, the thief, speaking of Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, what he, that's who he is. That's what he does. But then Jesus gives us the contrast of what he came to do. That's what Satan came to do. But I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So Satan desires to destroy us, but Jesus desires to deliver us. And I love in 1 John 3, 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So even though there is a real enemy, we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to get you know, twisted up over this thing because of, of what it, we're told in 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you as a believer, Christ, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. If Christ is in you, you have nothing to fear. If Christ is in you, you are safe and secure from all alarm, as the hymn says, because Jesus is greater. So this is one of those situations where my God can beat up your God. And I love that truth. There's nobody that can contend with Jesus at all. And this is made clear through our next observation that we see here. So demons are real, yes, but demons are afraid of Jesus. Did you notice how Legion responded when he saw Jesus? Verse 6 in Mark says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And you think, well, wow, was this an act of worship? Was he? No, this is an act of submission. He's, he's terrified. Because, and they even ask, he, they know who's boss. They're saying, did you come to torment us? Are you going to send us into the abyss? They understand that Jesus has full control and authority over them and what happens to them next. And they're terrified of him. They're worried. I love that, you know. I don't know why, even that question that comes up, are you going to throw us into the abyss? And it's like, please throw them into the abyss, all of them now. What are you waiting for? Just put them all into the abyss would be my, that's how I would vote. But verse 29, it says, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Which tells us that they, they know their time is short. They know their time is coming. And they're kind of confused. Like, you're coming a little early, aren't you? There's, they, they realize something's off here. But I love that they're afraid of him. You know, many of us are afraid of demonic things, but demonic things are terrified of Jesus. <laughs> I love this. We have Jesus on our team. So we're, we're in pretty good shape here. And I want you to think about the potential odds here for a minute. I don't know how all this works because this is the spiritual realm. But as I already pointed out, legion means 6,000. That's a big number. Now, somebody could argue that the demons were just trying to convey a big number when they said, you know, this is my name, legion. Um, we also know, though, that there were 2,000 pigs. So there was enough pigs for the demons to go into the pigs for them. So it's, it's a lot of demons, right? So we have several thousand powerful, terrifying demons. I mean, one would just cause us to, I don't know, thousands against one Jesus. What kind of fights is this going to be? How hard is this going to be for Jesus? <laughs> it's just like he literally says one word go and they flee fight over done that's not much of a fight at all is it i couldn't help but think of the great hymn and since tomorrow's reformation day and martin luther wrote the hymn these are old words so you know hopefully you guys track with it but it's the from the hymn a mighty fortress is our god and it says and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him 
go. I don't know if he was thinking of this when he wrote the hymn, but that's it. That one little word will just knock him down. So this means that Jesus has complete authority over all the forces of evil, all of them. And I see so many Christians today getting caught up in, I don't know, these conspiracies of these you know, elaborate, well-orchestrated networks of evil in the world today, the Illuminati, QAnon, all these things. I don't even know what all of them are, but people sit there and trip out on this stuff all day long as though it's a real threat to God. And really, they're just getting distracted from the mission that they've been given to go and preach the hope of Christ to the people that need to hear it. Christ wins in the end. Evil is no match for him. This brings us to our next observation, though, which is kind of a hard one, if I'm being honest. Satan is not able to do anything in this world or anything in your life apart from the sovereign permission of God. The demons needed permission to do what they wanted to do. And we also see this perfectly illustrated in the book of Job. If you're not familiar with it, Satan comes before God. He has to get permission before he can do anything to Job. It's the way it works. But this truth comes with implications, right? Some of you will be comforted and some of you will be confounded by that truth. You're, it's a great comfort when things are going well in your life. Right? It's like, this is great. God's in control. Things are going well. But it's not a great comfort when things are going bad, which is why we come up with alternatives to give us comfort. And so a lot of people, including Christians, like to believe that there's this great cosmic battle going on between God and Satan, that they're two worthy adversaries that go back and forth and kind of like, I don't know, I, I was trying, I'm not a superhero guy, but Superman and Lex Luthor, you know, one of those kinds of things where you've got this battle that is ensuing. And some days Satan gets the upper hand and wins the battle. And some days God gets the upper hand and wins the battle. And, and then on the days when we have a bad day and something bad happens, we reason that Satan must have won the battle that day. Um, and I would just argue that the implications of that kind of belief are far worse than the implications of God being in total control, right? Because if God can be beaten on any given day, what's to stop him from being beaten on the very last day? That should terrify you more than anything else. But that, that's not a reality at all. It's just something people do to comfort themselves. There's this doctrine called open theism that has this belief that God limits what he knows and what he does. And it's not true. God cannot be beaten. His plan cannot be thwarted. He has no chinks in his armor, no weak spots, no worthy adversaries. And, and, and yes, that makes certain things that come our way hard to understand, but it's way better than the alternative. Is it not? And of course, this is where faith must come in. This is where a verse like Romans 8.28 becomes like a blanket to wrap yourself in, this great comfort of a verse, because it says this, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This does not mean that all things will always be good. It's not what it says. It means that for the believer, for the one who has been called by God to salvation, both the good things and the bad things that happen are working together to accomplish God's good purpose in our life. Exhibit A is the cross. It seems like we come here every week, but I don't know where else to take you. This is the best place for us to go to the cross because the cross is where the worst thing that's ever happened took place. The innocent Jesus was beaten, humiliated. He suffered for sins that he didn't commit. 
He was wrongly accused, wrongly killed. This is hands down the most terrible and tragic thing that's ever happened in the world. Satan got what he wanted that day. Evil men rejoiced to see their plan accomplished and Jesus stopped. And it looked like a day when evil completely triumphed. But is that what happened? No, not even close. It's not what happened at all. God was in complete control. He was using it for good. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? Just like the story of Joseph. What came out of the most tragic event in human history, sin and death and Satan were crushed, defeated forever. Salvation was accomplished. Eternal salvation for all who would believe was accomplished that day. That was not a tragic loss. That was not a bad day. That was the greatest day that's ever existed. But it, but it didn't look that way for a minute. And that's why we need to spend time there. So the next time you're going, you know, wondering, what God, what God, what are you doing in my life? Why is this? Why are you allowing this? What's going on? We need to spend some time at the cross and just remember who God is and what he can accomplish. He can do anything. And he is working out his purposes. So we need to trust him and praise his name through it all. Well, the next observation we make is that Jesus can transform anyone. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that nobody was holding out hope for, for this, this man, this legion, whoever he was. Everyone had given up on him, and they just thought the world would be a better place without this guy. And we think of people this way far too often. They're beyond redemption. They're beyond hope. You know, there's people that could have said that about many of us in this room. There's no way. They're beyond hope. They're, they're beyond redemption. And as far gone as this person was, he wasn't too far gone for Jesus, was he? No, which means none of us are. If God could save this dude, he's kind of like the poster child for pretty hard guy to save, I would say. If he can save him, he can save all of us. Jesus is able to break the spiritual chains that bind us and set us free. It's funny to think that they kept trying to chain this guy and the demons kept breaking the, the, the physical chains, but he was bound spiritually and only Jesus could break those chains, but he did. And I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, because this would have had so much meaning in this man's life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if, what a contrast in this guy's life. Think about what he was like, the old and the new, right next to each other that day. He was naked, and now he's clothed, both physically and spiritually. He was uncontrollably defiant, and now he humbly bows in submission before Jesus Christ. He was violent and self-destructive, and now he's harmless and at peace. He was defiantly opposed to God, and, and now he wants to follow him and tell others about him. No one is beyond the powerful reach of God. His arm is not too short to save, and this man is just proof of that. The other thing we see in, in this, this thing that's important is the value of human life. You know, we already talked about the elephant in the room. Now we need to talk about the, the well, I shouldn't say the pigs in the room. That sounds bad, but in the story, I'll say that. There's no pigs here. I'm not trying to... Uh, that sounded offensive. But we have 2,000 pigs being, being killed that day, and that's a tragic loss. And I, I think as time has gone on, I don't know how, how horrifying this story was in that regard, but as animal rights stuff and people get more, you know, this is, this is a hard thing for people. You know, to the Jew, the pig was an unclean animal, and they didn't eat him, and so it probably wasn't a big deal. Um, but for people today that read this story, I'm sure they're wondering, what's going on with the pigs, Lord? And I don't know the perfect answer. I know that they provided, like if you think about how this miracle went down, the pigs and what happened to them was a visible proof of what Jesus had done. The fact that he had you know, taken these demons from one person to another and then their reaction, what they did, all of this kind of held this miracle up to a much, much higher level. 
Um, there's also something extremely ironic about unclean pigs. If you've ever been around pigs, you know this is true. They won't reject anything, pretty much. I mean, they just won't. Um, but they were unwilling to host unclean spirits. They rejected this. They rejected evil. And again, as part of God's good creation, that makes sense. But the fact remains that we're living in a time when, when the status and the worth of animals has been elevated above humans. We see this all the time. And, and, and an argument could easily be made that animals, including pigs, are actually nicer and better behaved than many humans. But that doesn't change the fact that humans are created in the image of God. There's something different about humans. And I think that as stewards of God's creation, we should, we should care for animals, we should be kind to animals, but we need to keep them in their proper perspective. Jesus saw more value in, in a man that nobody saw value in, one human soul, than he did 2,000 pigs. Um, in his commentary on Matthew, Daniel Doriani writes about learning the lesson of the pigs. He said, there are people who don't want toddlers to enter their homes because they don't want them to drool on the table or touch the antiques. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. There are people who will not spend their money or use their property to meet human needs because they're afraid of depleting their assets. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. People are more important than possessions. And you can see the, the reaction of the townspeople to this situation. They, they didn't see it that way. They saw the value of the pigs was a total loss, a greater loss than, than what happened to this man. That's what they were concerned about. They were upset about what happened to the possessions more than rejoicing over what happened to the man. They should have been rejoicing that a soul was rescued that day. They should have been bowing before Jesus, seeing this transformation and knowing that only God could do this. But what were they concerned about? Their livelihood. They wanted Jesus to leave. Isn't that crazy to think about? They Two times somebody begged in this story. The demons begged Jesus not to send them to the abyss, and the townspeople begged Jesus to leave their region. Isn't that crazy to think about? Get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you here. But he just saved his soul. Doesn't matter. Go. Crazy. The last uh, thing that we see in this, is this, uh, in this story is that how Jesus commissioned this man to go and tell others about what happened. And I love that this man, when he's, everything's changed, everything's restored, all he wants to do is get into the boat with Jesus and stay by his side and follow him wherever he goes. Makes sense. I would want to do the same thing. And, and you would think that Jesus would, would be like, yep, come with me, man. We're going, we're going to go do things together now. This is going to be great. But he says, you know what? You're going to have more impact if you go back home, back to your friends, and let them see the transformation that's taken place in your life. And a lot of you guys know exactly what this looks like because it's happened to you and it's happened to me. I remember what I was like before Jesus and what happened afterwards. And the people that knew me couldn't make sense of it. They didn't understand what was happening. You, you, we know you. We know what you're like. We know how, I mean, I, was, I won't go into detail, but the transformation was obvious. And this is what he wants him to do. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it says that when, when, the, when he did this, everyone marveled at what took place. Can you imagine the impact this guy's testimony would have had on the people that knew him and saw the change? And the same is true for you. Jesus has told you to do the exact same thing. He's also commissioned you to go and tell people what Jesus has done for you and the mercy he's had on your soul and the change that's taken place through, what, through him and your life. These accounts are precious to me. 
They show us that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he has complete authority over everything, including all the stuff that causes me to fear. And they also give us a glimpse of what's to come for those who place their trust in Jesus. A day is coming when everything evil will be put rightly where it belongs in the abyss. It will be locked. It will be done and over with, and we will never see it again. Can you imagine a kingdom where absolutely no evil exists? None? I just can't, I mean, there's, it's just going to be amazing. I, I'm so discouraged sometimes when I see the, the things that go on in this world, and it can be disheartening, but take heart. If you know Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, look over the top of this, you know, this trash heap that's just this, this dumpster fire that's going on around us sometimes at what's coming, a day when it's all made right. I can't wait for that. Lord, thank you so much that, that you have come into this world to destroy the works of Satan and to save souls. Lord, if you can save a man like the one we read about in this story, you can save anyone. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have um, been merciful to us as sinners. We pray that we would take this message of who you are and what you've done for us to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors and our coworkers, and, and that they would see the transformation that's taken place through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's something only you can do, something you get all the credit for. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would be the kind of church that, that lets people know what's going on and, and that we would see lives transformed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.